as we move into this kind of confusing passage this morning, I just want to ask a simple question. When you are blessed, how do you respond? When you receive a blessing from somebody, how do you respond? I think in our culture, we often respond in a few different ways. Kind of Minnesota nice culture, you know what I mean? There's like someone offers you something and you try and reject it. It's kind of like, well, I don't really want to receive that. I have a friend actually who's here in this church service this morning who tells me about his, his um, efforts to bless his coworkers. He often goes out to lunch with them and he wants to buy them lunch and they're like, oh no, don't worry about it, I can, I can cover myself. And so when someone blesses you, you can try and reject it. You can try and kind of um, not receive the blessing that they want to give you. Or you can try and repay it. You ever been there? Somebody gives you something nice and, and you want to repay that blessing. You, you work hard to try and, try and pay it off as though it's a debt that you've incurred. In fact, this happened to my wife and I recently. Somebody just blessed us with something. And my first reaction was, how will I ever repay them? The reality is they didn't want repayment. They wanted to bless us. Or you can receive it and kind of go on your way without giving much thanks, right? I mean, these are kind of the Minnesota nice cultural things to do, I think. We can receive, we can reject, we can try and repay, we can just take it and run the other way. Well, our text this morning has a blessing. It has an incredible blessing and a proper response to a blessing. That's what we're going to look at this morning. So as we get into Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 through 10, we're going to look at a blessing that comes to Abram from a guy named Melchizedek. And what does he do with that blessing? How does he respond to that blessing? We're going to see the proper response to a godly blessing. But in order to do that, we need to understand Melchizedek a little bit. There's some confusing stuff going on in this passage. And in order to get to the blessing, in order to get underneath what I think God has for us this morning, we need to understand four relationships and two responses. In this passage, there's four relationships that I think will help us to understand how to receive a blessing from God. If we understand these four relationships, we will see also two ways to respond to God's blessing. So four relationships to understand, two ways to respond. Really the big idea of this passage, and it's as the middle books of Hebrews are all about, that Jesus is a greater high priest. So as we look at Hebrews chapter 7 verses 1 through 4, the big idea is that Jesus is the better high priest. He's the better high priest in the line of Melchizedek. So that's the idea. But that's the ongoing idea throughout the, throughout the book of Hebrews here. And so today what I want to do, knowing that that's the big idea, Jesus is the greater high priest, and we'll discover elements of that throughout the coming weeks. That's the big idea of the text. What I want to do is I want to peer into this kind of side teaching of the text about blessings and offerings. And so the question, again, how do you respond when you are blessed? By others or maybe by God? In order for us to really get that, I want to look at these four relationships and the two responses. And so let's just get into it here. The first relationship that we need to understand to understand this text better is Melchizedek to Abram. It was just read for us in Genesis chapter 14, Melchizedek to Abram. Abram, this is the same guy later on in the Hebrew scriptures called Abraham. The Genesis 14 passage, his name hasn't yet been changed to Abraham. It's still Abram, so we'll keep him Abram here. But the relationship here to understand is Melchizedek to Abram. What is this relationship? Melchizedek is this mysterious figure in the scriptures that few people know much about. In fact, we, we, nobody knows a whole lot about him because there's not a lot of content about him. He's mentioned here for three verses in Genesis chapter 14. And then he's mentioned in Psalm 
110, and then he's mentioned in Hebrews 5, 6, and 7, and that's it. And if it wasn't for the author, the preacher of Hebrews, kind of unpacking for us who Melchizedek was, all we would have is three little verses in Genesis 14 and Psalm 110 to tell us about who Melchizedek is. But the author, the preacher of Hebrews, gets into Melchizedek for a reason. I think there's something for us to learn from this scripture, from this figure in scripture, from this little known figure in scripture. And so he unpacks a little bit for us who Melchizedek is in Hebrews chapter 7. And I think for us to understand it, let's talk a little bit about who Melchizedek is. What does the text tell us? Look at Hebrews chapter 7 verse 1. This Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. So Hebrews, the the preacher, the author of Hebrews, is pointing back to the story in Genesis chapter 14, and he's telling us who this Melchizedek character is. He is the king of Salem. Now, keep in mind as we talk about this, that this is all before God had established the Israelites, the Jewish people, and given them the holy city, Jerusalem. Salem. What is Salem? He's the king of Salem. He's the king of Jerusalem before Jerusalem existed. It's the same city, the same place. And so God is saying this this Melchizedek guy was king of the holy city before the holy city even existed. There's some interesting things to note there and to, to think about there. What is God trying to communicate to us about this holy city, Jerusalem, which he would later give to the Jewish people, to the Israelites as their holy city? He is a priest of the Most High God. Now, this is before the the priesthood was set up. Much of Hebrews is about the Levitical priesthood. Remember, we're talking about Jesus being the greater high priest. But this Genesis 14 story is before the Old Testament high priesthood was even set up. The Levites weren't established yet. God God hadn't made his covenant with the Israelites yet. And here we're being told that even before Levi and Aaron came and set up the Levitical priesthood. There was a priest who existed before that, a priest of the Most High God. That's Melchizedek. An interesting thing to note about Melchizedek is that it was was, um, unheard of and uncalled for for somebody to operate as a king and a priest in the Old Testament. These were two separate offices, two separate roles. You could not serve as a king and a priest. You could be a king or you could be a priest. And in order to be a priest, you had to come down through the line of Levi, through the house of Aaron. You had to be able to trace your lineage back in the Jewish, in the Jewish culture, in their community. You had to trace your lineage back to the line of Levi and the house of Aaron. If you couldn't do that, you weren't allowed to be a priest. And you could definitely not be a priest and a king, right? There had to be some separation of power and spiritual service. But here we're told that Melchizedek is both a king and a priest. He, this is scandalous in the Jewish mind. They're being reminded about this figure who predates their, their community, who predates the Israelite nation. And they're being told and reminded that he was both a king and a priest. He was a priest of the Most High God, of Yahweh, the Most High God. And he was a king of Salem the city of peace, Jerusalem, the holy city, which would come later. So this Melchizedek character, he, he preempts, he comes before your great King David. He comes before the high priest and the Levitical priesthood and all of the Old Testament law and systems that were set up. And he comes and he blesses Abram, who becomes Abraham, the father 
of the Jewish nation, of the Israelites. So Abram receives a blessing from this guy, Melchizedek. Melchizedek is superior, as it says in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 7. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. Okay, so Abram is inferior. He's being blessed by Melchizedek, the superior. Melchizedek is the greater figure. He is greater than Abram in this story. That's why he can bless him. And flip over to Genesis chapter 14, again on page 10. In the story here, Abram just went out to war. It's the only time that it's recorded that he goes into battle and he wins the battle handedly. And I love this. Um, it's, be- it's a beautiful picture. He's met in this valley, the Valley of Shiva, that is the King's Valley. Could you imagine being in this valley, the King's Valley, after these nations go to war? Abram's in the King's Valley. I mean, it just sounds epic, doesn't it? And powerful. And these kings come out to meet him. Verse 18, and Melchizedek, king of Salem. Again, Melchizedek. This mysterious figure from the Old Testament who's both king and priest from the city of Salem. Peace, Jerusalem. He comes out and he meets Abram in the king's valley. I want to look at three different things that are going on here in this relationship. Melchizedek meets Abram. He pursues Abram. He meets Abram where Abram's at. Melchizedek comes to the king's valley. He seeks out Abram, Abram, who later becomes Abraham. This is confusing because Hebrews 7 refers to him as Abraham because it's in the new covenant and it's in the future. But Genesis 14 refers to him as Abram because chronologically he hasn't become Abraham yet. So if I call him a weird combination of the two, that's why. Um, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. So he meets Abram where he's at in the king's valley and he comes to him and he eats with him. He brings him bread and wine. This is my kind of king's blessing. What a beautiful picture. He says, I'm going to come and I'm going to refresh you. I'm going to bring you the finest foods and and I want to bless you. Verbally, look at verse 19, and he blesses him. So Melchizedek, greater than Abram, he meets Abram where he's at. He eats with Abram and he blesses Abram. He blesses him with words and he also blesses him with a meal. He blesses him with the bread and the wine. Here's the verbal blessing. He says, Blessed be Abram by God, most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God, most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. That's the relationship between Melchizedek and Abram. Melchizedek is greater. But in his greatness, he meets Abram where he's at, He eats with Abram. He shares with him a meal of bread and wine. Keep that in mind for later in the service. And then he blesses him, both with the bread and wine, but also with the promises of God. In Genesis chapter 12, God had promised to Abram that he would make him a great nation, that he would bless the worlds through him. And here, Melchizedek is coming and reminding him, and he's blessing him On behalf of God, blessed be Abram by God Most High, the King of Salem and the priest of the Most High God is is reconfirming God's blessings upon you. So this incredible relationship. And how does Abram respond? Genesis chapter 14, verse 20b. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. That's a tenth of all the spoils. That's a tenth of the loot. That's a tenth of all the things that Abram had gained in this war. 
So he had just conquered some other nations. And, and in doing that, you receive all of their possessions. And so as Melchizedek, the greater figure, comes and blesses Abram, Abram responds by, by giving a tenth of all that he has back to Melchizedek. And this is a pattern in the Old Testament. Some of us have been taught that our tithes and offerings, I mean, as we pass the plate here, some of us have been taught that you have to give a tenth because of the Old Testament system. There's Old Testament, pass. I mean, we see it here even before the Mosaic law is in order. But we see here that Abram responds to this generosity. He responds to the blessing of Melchizedek by giving him a tenth. He receives the blessing from Abram. I love that. He doesn't, there's no record, recording of him saying, hey, thanks for offering a bread and wine, but I can't take that because then I'll be in debt to you. He says, thank you. They eat together. He receives the blessing. That's how Abram responds to Melchizedek's greatness, by receiving the gift that Melchizedek gives to him. But then he also returns to Melchizedek a tenth. He, he gives something back, and this isn't out of law. Remember, the Old Testament law isn't even in order yet. This is out of a heart of gratitude, a heart of response to being blessed. And then throughout the Old Testament scriptures, we see, we see different patterns of giving. God sets up with the Israelites how to respond to God's blessing. So God, in, in the Psalms, it says he owns a cattle on a thousand hills, and God will provide everything that you need. Look at, look at this blessing from Melchizedek. Blessed be Abraham by God most high, possessor of heaven, of the heavens and the earth. God owns everything. He's the possessor of the heavens and the earth, and he has chosen to bless his people. And so throughout the Old Testament, throughout the Hebrew scriptures, as God blesses, he then writes into law that their response is to give. So the response of God's blessing is to give. The Old Testament law was you give a tenth to the Levites, to the priests. So once Israel is set up once they're flowing in all their systems, once the Levitical priesthood is set up. The commands for the Jewish people is to give a tenth to the priests. That would be me in the new modern, thank you for giving. It's different though in the New Testament. We'll get there. But this is how they function in the Old Testament system. The Jewish people would give a tenth of their income so that the priests, so that the, the Levites could have something to live off of because they weren't allowed to own land. They weren't allowed to invest. They, they weren't allowed to provide for themselves. They had to trust God to bless the nation and the nation to give a tenth back to the priests. That's how it worked. And then they were also responsible to give a tenth for festivals and gatherings. And so the Jewish people gave a tenth to the Levitical system, to the priests. They gave a tenth to the, the different Sabbath uh, festivals and the different gatherings that they had. So that's 20%. Attend to the Levites, attend to the um, 10 to the different festivals, that's 10 plus 10, 20%. So they're regularly giving 20% of all of, the, all of their, their fruits and crops and everything that they bring in and their finances. They're giving 20% back. And then every third year, they gave a tenth to, to the poor among them. Oftentimes it was widows, orphans, and then sojourners, people who wandered through and spent some time with them. And so on average, they're giving about 23%. That's the Old Testament law. That's the Old Testament system of how this worked. And it's often referred to as the first fruits. They give it off the top. They don't receive God's blessings and then do their little budget and then figure out, I can afford to give God a dollar, so I'm going to give God a dollar. They would receive God's blessings. They would say, okay, 
A tenth of this is God's, as Abram does even before the Old Testament law. Abram gives a tenth of everything. He gives it freely, graciously, joyfully. That's his automatic response. And so in the Old Testament, there's this principle of first fruits giving. There's a law, a command of tithing. Tithe means a tenth. There's a law of tithing, but this idea of first fruits giving, of giving out of joy, giving off the top. And so that's kind of what we see here in this Old Testament system coming back into the New Testament. Let's look back at Hebrews chapter 7. And let's just read through the story again here in Hebrews 7. For this Melchizedek, this great high king, priest, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, he met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and he blesses him. Verse 2, and to him Abram, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He gave a tithe. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. Melchizedek means king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues as a priest forever. So some people wonder, is Melchizedek a Old Testament appearance of Jesus? Is Melchizedek, does he live forever? The point that the author of Hebrews is making here, and I, I don't believe we need to spend forever trying to figure out who Melchizedek is, who his parents were. I think in the flow of this passage, what the author is saying is that Melchizedek, he, he says he's without genealogy because he's not worried about tracing his genealogy back to the, the line of Levi and the house of Aaron because he comes before Levi and Aaron. And then he says he's resembling the Son of God. He comes as a priest forever. So he is a forerunner. He's a picture for us of the coming Messiah, of Jesus. And so he blesses Abram. He's greater than Abram, and he blesses him. He blesses him by meeting him where he's at, by sharing with him a meal of bread and wine, and by speaking God's promises over him. How does Abram respond? By receiving the blessing. Thank you. I, I will open my hands and I will take it. And then returning a tenth, giving of his first fruits in joyful response. That's one relationship we need to understand. The next relationship for, under, for us to understand here in Hebrews 7 to make the most sense of this is that Abraham, now we're going to call him Abraham because this is in the New Testament. His name has been changed. He's the father of many nations. He's the father of the Jewish people. Abraham is equal to us. You and I sitting here this morning as primarily Gentiles, we are equal to Abraham. Abraham is equal to us. And this is an incredible New Testament reality. For the Jewish people throughout the, throughout the scriptures held this high view of Abraham. He's a patriarch of the faith. He's the one that God gave the promises to. I will make you a great nation and I will bless the nations of the world through you. And we are children of Abraham now. We are children of the promise. We are recipients of that promise. Romans chapter 11 talks about us being grafted in to the Israelite nation, to the Jewish people, that God, Yahweh, is our father. Abraham is our, a patriarch. But now we are equal to Abraham. Look at how it says this in Galatians chapter 3, verse 29, and that's on page 974 in the Pew Bible. I want you to flip there and look at it. 974 in the Pew Bible. Galatians chapter 3, verse 29. 
This is the Apostle Paul writing, who used to be Saul. He was this incredible Jewish leader who became a Christian, believing that Jesus was this Messiah. And here's what he writes to Gentile followers of Jesus, who most of us are. He says, and you are Christ's. And if you are Christ, if you're in Christ, if you believe in Christ, if you've repented of your sin and received Jesus as your Savior, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So as we read Hebrews 7 now, there's this comparison going on that Melchizedek is greater than Abram or Abraham. We are equal to Abraham. We are identified with Abraham. We are children of the promise, so we need to put ourselves in the place of Abraham put Melchizedek in the place of the greater one who's blessing Abraham. We're, we're building somewhere. This is going somewhere. I know it's confusing and there's a lot here, but we're going somewhere. There's an incredible gospel principle for us at the end. So track with me, stick with me as we get through this. So we are equal to Abraham. Melchizedek is greater than us. He's greater than Abraham. Therefore, he's greater than us. So that's a relationship. Just know that when the scriptures talks about the promises given to Abraham, those promises are for, for you. All that the scriptures have to say about Abraham, all of the promises given to Abraham are true for you if you are in Christ. All right, let's move to the next relationship. Jesus, then, is greater than Melchizedek. Okay, Melchizedek is greater than Abram. We are equal to Abram. Jesus is greater than Melchizedek. That's what Hebrews is telling us. That's what Hebrews chapter 5, where he's first introduced, chapter 6 Verse 20, where he's reintroduced, and then chapter 7, where it's unpacked. Hebrews is telling us that Jesus is greater than Melchizedek. Melchizedek is a picture of the coming Christ, the coming Messiah. Melchizedek is the the priest of the Most High God and the king of the city of Salem. And he comes out as as the superior to bless the inferior Abram. But now in the New Testament reality, Jesus is the greater Melchizedek. Melchizedek was only there to point us towards a coming king priest who would rule and reign forever. That is Jesus, the Christ. Let's read 7 again. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to, Abraham, and to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. Then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Who's the Son of God? Jesus the Christ. Melchizedek resembles the Son of God, but Jesus is the Son of God. And so keep in mind the context of Hebrews. This is a sermon, and in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, the preacher has already said this. He, Jesus, look at it, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So Melchizedek... In Hebrews 7, it says that he's without father, mother, without genealogy. It's just saying that he's not from the line of Levi. We don't need to worry about who Melchizedek's parents are. Scripture tells us that he was king and priest, king of, the most, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God. Don't worry about his lineage. God said it. It predates what God, the system that God set up. Here's what we need to know about Jesus. He upholds the universe. The universe was created through him. He is greater than Melchizedek. 
Nowhere in the scriptures does it say that Melchizedek is the, the pre-existing son of God who is there at creation, who upholds the creation by the word of his power. And then the second half of Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, it says, after making purification for sins, which is what the priest did, which is what Melchizedek did, which is what the Israelite um, priests did, after Jesus made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And then as we continue to go through Hebrews chapter 7, the author is making the point. Let's pick it up in Hebrews 7 verse 4. See how great this man was to whom Abram the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. See how great Melchizedek is. Abram gave to him. In receiving blessings from Melchizedek, Abram gave to him. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers. So the Israelite people give tithes to the priests, and the priests are commanded to receive it. But this man who does not have his descendants from them receives tithes from Abram and Abraham and blessed him who he had the promise. Again, this is Melchizedek receiving tithes from Abraham and blessing Abraham. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by the one whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham. For he was still in the loins of his ancestors when Melchizedek met him. And that just means that, that um, it's a funny way of saying that families are connected throughout the generations. And as Hebrews 7 goes on, and we're going to pick it up the second half of 7 next week, but what we notice and what we see is that the preacher, the author, is making, us, making the point for us that Jesus is greater than Melchizedek. Melchizedek is in here to show us the greatness of Jesus. So let's keep putting ourselves in the place of the story. If, we, if Melchizedek is greater than Abram and he blesses him, Abram responds by receiving that blessing and returning a tithe. We are equal to Abraham. Jesus is greater than Melchizedek. Then what does that mean for our relationship with Jesus? That's the last relationship we have to look at here. Our relationship with Jesus. Now, at this point in the story, Abraham represents us. Melchizedek represents Jesus. Abraham is the father of our faith. We can step into his place in these promises, in these blessings. Melchizedek is a forerunner to Jesus. So Jesus steps into Melchizedek's place. Melchizedek is a placeholder for Jesus. Think of it that way. And so now the question is, how do we relate to Jesus? Jesus is the superior one who blesses the inferior one. Jesus is the eternal priest king. He's the, the king of Salem, Jerusalem, the city of peace. He's the priest of the most high God. Other than Melchizedek, he's the only one who had the authority to come as the high priest and the king to serve in those two roles together. Melchizedek is simply a foreshadow of Jesus. Jesus is the true king. Jesus is the creator of the world. Jesus the greater blesses the lesser. That would be us. So Jesus is the great son of God, the priest of the most high God, the king of Salem, the one who comes in the flesh, the God who comes in the flesh to bless us. And what does Jesus do? 
like Melchizedek, met Abraham. Jesus comes to us and he meets us where we're at. Jesus is is God incarnate leaving heaven and coming to us to meet us where we are at. Whether we're in the valley of the kings after a great victory as Abram was when Melchizedek met him, or whether we're in the valley of the shadow of death, Jesus the greater leaves his place of superiority and he comes to bless us the lesser. He meets us where we're at. He meets us on our turf. God becomes man to come and meet you and I where we are. Melchizedek sought Abram out to bless him where he was. God leaves heaven and comes to you and I to meet us where we're at. And what does he do when he meets us where we're at? What did he do with the disciples the night before his death? He shared a meal. He blessed them with bread and wine. The same way that Melchizedek comes and he blesses Abram with bread and wine. Jesus comes. God leaves heaven and he comes to live among us. And he brings bread and wine to us. And he breaks the bread saying, this is my body given for you. And he hands them the cup saying, this is my blood shed for you. Would you share this meal with me? God on our level, in our place, meeting us where we're at. Blessing us with food and drink. For, for, for us to be sustained physically, but then also the spiritual significance, saying that this is my body given for you. This is salvation in your hands. Jesus meets us where we're at. He eats with us a meal of bread and wine, and he verbally blesses us. He gives us the blessing of God. We looked at this passage last week, but 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20 says, All of the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. So Jesus comes to fulfill all of the blessings that God gave to Abraham, the father of the faith. Those are ours to receive. Jesus meets us where we're at. He eats with us a meal of bread and wine. And he gives us the verbal blessings and promise of God. Look at Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1 which is on page 976. Ephesians 3.1 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You ready for it? This is incredible. Who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In Jesus, you and I are blessed. We have been given all of the promises of God. We have been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Melchizedek and Abram, their relationship is a picture to show us that in Jesus, God comes to fulfill his promise to give us every spiritual blessing. The way that Melchizedek blesses Abram is a picture to the way that Jesus blesses us by meeting us on our turf, by sharing with us a meal of bread and wine, and by saying everything that God the Father has planned, all good that he has is for you Every blessing in the spiritual, in the heavenly places, every spiritual blessing is yours in Jesus Christ. So the question is, how do we respond to that reality? When you are blessed, how do you respond? When you're blessed by God the Father, the creator of the heavens and the earth, how do you respond to that blessing? Do you try and repay him? I mean, God has blessed you with Jesus. He's given you 
everything. He's fulfilled all of his promises. Every spiritual blessing is ours in Christ. How do we respond? Do we say, no, God, don't worry. I got this. I'm going to clean my life up. I'm going to become more moral. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to do my devos. I'm going to go to church more. I'm going to sing louder. I'm going to prove that I was worth this. Is that how we respond to blessings? Or do we give a tithe? Do we give an offering to try and repay him? Or do we reject and walk away from his blessings? I would submit to you that there's two ways for us to respond based off of this passage. There's many ways for us to respond, but based off of this passage, two ways. We simply receive the blessing. God's blessing in Jesus Christ. When Melchizedek rode into the valley of the kings to bless Abram, what did Abram do? As far as we know, he just received it. He ate the bread and wine with Melchizedek, the picture of Jesus. We are in the place of Abram. What do we do when God comes to us in the person of Jesus, meeting us where we're at, giving us bread and wine, offering us the promises of God? Here's what we do. We open up our hands and we receive. Have you received the blessings of God in the person of Jesus Christ? It's a free gift. That's why we talk about the gospel. It's good news. It's free. It's for all of us. It's for each and every one of us. We don't have to pay Jesus. We don't have to pay God back for the gift of Jesus Christ. We don't have to, we don't have to work off our sin debt. We never could. Open your hands and receive the blessing of God in the person of Jesus Christ. You can never earn it. You can never work it off. You can never repay it. Don't reject it. Just open your hands and receive it. God is saying, here's my gracious gift to you, Jesus. Would you remember him as you drink the cup? Would you remember him as you eat the bread? As Melchizedek blessed Abram, so I, God, am blessing you in the person of Jesus Christ. Would you receive? And then we return, like Abram, I think we return an offering, giving our first fruits to God with joyful hands. Now, in the New Testament, this isn't a law. This doesn't mean we give a tenth as a law. It's a response of love. In fact, in the New Testament, there's nowhere to be found the command for us to give a tenth. So in this story, we're seeing Abram, who becomes Abraham, he gives a tenth. That's his response, is to give a tenth. To give a first fruit, the, best, the first and the best of what he has, he gives to Melchizedek, the one who blesses him. In the Old Testament, we see the commands to give, but even underneath that, God's heart was, was in our sacrificial response to receiving his blessings. It's not a law to give. It's a response of love. So my questions for us this morning, when, we, when we're blessed by God, will we open up our hands and receive his blessings? And then will we simply return an offering? It's not a tenth. It's not a tithe. In fact, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, read that if you're questioning this. 2 Corinthians chapter 9 says, God loves a cheerful giver. The command there is for us to decide in our own hearts with God what's right for us to give back to God. And really, it's all his. He's the possessor of heaven and earth. But, but what do we tangibly give back to God? Is it a percentage? Is it, is it, a, it, it needs to be sacrificial and faith-based. That's the principle in the scriptures. So the question remains for us, when we are blessed by God, how do we respond? God is present this morning desiring to bless each one of us. 
He has blessed each one of us in the person of Jesus Christ. In Jesus, every spiritual blessing is ours. Would you open your hands and would you receive it? Maybe you've done that already with a, with a prayer of repentance and confession by asking Jesus to be Lord of your life. But you know what? We need to do that each and every day as Christians, don't we? Receive the grace of God in the person of Jesus Christ because we so often try and repay him. And he says, stop trying to repay me. You cannot repay me. This is a free gift. Receive it. And then, yeah, you can return an offering in joy, an offering of sacrifice, an offering of worship, an offering of giving, an offering of, of serving others, whatever that may look like. Our first fruits, our time, our treasures, our talents. A rightful response is for us to give with a joyful heart and, and generous hands. And that's how we respond to the blessings of God in the person of Jesus Christ. So I want us to just respond to that now with a time of communion and worship. The stations are here, and there's one in the back as well. I just ask, ask that you come down the center aisles and receive the elements and return to your seat. But as we stand and as we sing and as we come to the elements, would you receive the blessings of God in the person of Jesus Christ? That's what the communion elements are here to remind us of. That in Jesus Christ, you have a free gift. God has met you where, you're, where you are at, each one of us. We all come from different places. God has met us there. He has brought, Jesus has brought with him a meal of bread and wine. He says, would you share this with me? For the forgiveness of your sins, for the nourishment of your body and soul, and for fellowship. That's why we call it communion. We commune with God and we commune with one another. Would you receive the blessings of God in the person of Jesus Christ? That's what these elements remind us of. And then would you on your own, as an individual or with your community group or with your spouse or with your friends, or with your roommates, would you ask, what's an appropriate response for me? What can I return to God with a grateful heart and generous hands? What is he asking me to respond with? And figure that out on your own because as 2 Corinthians 9 says, each person must determine what to give in their own heart. Let's pray and then let's respond. Jesus, I thank you for who you are, that you are the better Melchizedek, that you are the, the king of righteousness and peace and your rule and reign will never end. And you have grafted us in. We are in the place of Abraham, children of the promise, recipients of the promise. And in Jesus Christ, all the promises of God have their yes and their amen. In Jesus Christ, we have received every blessing in the heavenly places. And how could we not open up our hands and just receive you? So God, I, I pray that even in this time together here that, that we would, each one of us would open up our lives, open up our hands and receive the gift that you have for us in the person of Jesus Christ. Maybe for the hundredth time, maybe for the thousandth time, maybe for the first time. But what more do we need other than to receive the gift of Jesus Christ? And then I pray that you would supernaturally work in each one of our hearts to know how we return an offering. Not out of law, but out of love. What have you called us to respond with and to give back to you? Would you reveal that to us, Holy Spirit? We pray, amen.